Listen as Dr. Andrew Levitt from the University of California, San Francisco, discusses the reliability and accessibility of gene therapy for hemophilia. This podcast is part of the ISTH Comprehensive Educational Resource, designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.isth.org for more information. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm Andy Levitt from the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm the medical director for the Adult Hemophilia Treatment Center. What are the expectations regarding increases in factor activity? So um, we're speaking today about gene therapy for hemophilia A and B. With respect to these two disorders, we are seeing some differences in the uh, clinical trials to date. Uh, You ask expectations, Ah, that's in the eye of the beholder there, and we bring so many things for expectations. I think the data support the concept that with factor IX gene therapy, we seem to be seeing a consistent rise to the mid to upper levels of mild disease and tipping over a little bit in some patients into the normal range. And these will be enormous impacts on the patient's disease state and their quality of life. For factor VIII, the data are a little less mature um, in some aspects. Uh, we were seeing a slightly different kind of results where uh, in the studies, we're most often seeing a, a peak that seems to come down a bit. And uh, the issue of where that's going to level off is a little bit less clear. The data for nine seem to be a little more stable over time than it is for factor eight. But once again, everything's early, and I don't want to overstate what we know. If factor levels initially increase with treatment, what are the current expectations regarding durability of the response? This is an excellent question, and I think we have to take factor eight or hemophilia A and factor nine hemophilia B kind of separately. We have longer data collection times for hemophilia B or factor nine, and there appears to be reasonable stability from the early studies that are now out eight years or so as far as reporting. Now, those early studies had low levels, but they stayed quite consistent over time. The newer gene therapy trials for hemophilia B use a slightly different sequence for the factor IX gene and therefore provide a more active molecule. For these, we don't have as long a follow-up. So at this point, we're simply hoping that they'll be as stable as they are for the previous uh, forms of the vector. For factor VIII and hemophilia A, this is a very big issue that we're struggling with at the present time. Uh, As I mentioned a moment ago, there's a peak for money patients that then tends to fall back down a bit. Every patient is different where they kind of settle out. But when we look over time for the data that we have that's most mature from one of the companies involved, we see that the slope really hasn't leveled off. I guess one could say that's in the eye of the beholder. Some people see it leveling, some people don't. I think we just don't know where we're going. And it's very critical for patients when they want to get involved in gene therapy, be it as an clinical trial, or ultimately when it comes to market, that they have to understand that that's a big unknown, and only time will tell. What are the expectations regarding reduction in bleeding events and reduction of factor consumption? 
Here, I think we have much better information and feel more confident about what we can expect. We've seen a dramatic decrease in bleeds and a dramatic decrease in factor usage. That seems to be holding up, and I think people can expect that. And that's one of the great pluses of the gene therapy is being able to get away from uh, regular use of, of factor. When bleeding events occur, how should they be treated? Oh, so when bleeding occurs, and the good news is, is so far, there have been few bleeding events in patients on gene therapy, but there certainly have been. The bleeding is treated exactly like it would if you weren't on gene therapy. That is to say, you go back to your factor replacement. And that's also been true for the few cases where patients have had to, say, go to surgery, and maybe their levels were in the pleasantly mild range, but for their surgery, they may have needed normal levels. So replacement factor should still be the answer to treat a bleed. What are the expectations regarding prevention and or reversal of target joints and long-term joint disorders? Ah, so reversal of disease is something people should not expect. Joint disease that develops before you get into gene therapy will be the joint disease that you have going forward. There's nothing that will reverse itself. Or certainly, let me say this, there should be no expectation of that getting better. And in fact, it's very interesting. We're seeing a very fascinating phenomenon about joint discomfort, at least, and the need for pain medications, just simple pain medications, um, in that one of the things that we see is that people initially, and again, this is not, I can't say it's true for everybody, but in general, we've seen this enough that, that I talk to patients about this when they're considering gene therapy, and that is patients start to say how much better their joints feel. And that's in the earlier phases when they start to get uh, the kind of the kick in of the gene therapy itself, because what you have to recall here is when people are on regular IV infusions, they have peaks and they have troughs. And those troughs for most people are going to take them back down to the 1% range area. And so in those troughs, they could be having, could be, I said, you know, micro bleeds or other things going on. But once you start having steady states that are five, six, 10% activity, we've seen patients comment on how much happier they are with their joints. And in sometimes it's one of those situations where when they look back, they kind of didn't realize that it was a problem, but it's much better. Then their, their factor levels keep going up. And as they keep going up, they feel much better. So they do more. And they're very excited about that. And as they become much more active, doing things they haven't done in a long time, then they re-enter a new phase of some kind of joint discomforts. And this now, we feel, is likely to be just the, you know, repeated and, and much higher use of joints that have arthropathy. And so it's interesting, and this is a topic that we talk with our patients about a lot, so that we can help them manage through this both physically and psychologically. What are the expectations regarding access to gene therapy for hemophilia, if or when it becomes available? Well, I'm not, that, that's a complicated question. I, I might have to ask you what you mean by access, but let me take a stab at this. Certainly, there will be restrictions about who can have it. The clinical trials now are fairly consistent. There's always variability trial to trial. But for example, they've all been patients who are 18 years of age and older. So accessibility, once it becomes available to patients less than that, I think will not exist because the clinical data for approval will not include patients uh, at a younger age. So that's one access question. 
The other access question has to do with the fact that the clinical trials, for the most part, there is one exception, although it's somewhat early in its, in its uh, data collection, is the notion of having preformed antibodies that interact with the capsid protein in the vectors that are used. Pretty much all the studies to date use an adeno-associated vector, and they have different capsid proteins. And the patient population around the world, there are different likelihoods of any individual having preformed antibodies to those capsid proteins, and those patients have been, for the most part, excluded from the clinical trials. So preformed antibody will be an, an access limitation, at least for the foreseeable future, I would imagine. And the other big access issue will be those with previous history of inhibitors or the presence of inhibitors currently. Those patients have also been excluded from clinical trials. So there are well-defined groups of patients who will not have access to this, certainly in the initial waves of having this as a prescribable therapy. Now, hopefully research into the future will start to address these issues, but that will be an access issue. The other access issue uh, becomes much more complicated, and that is how does one translate or transform this highly intensive process of managing patients in gene therapy to a standard of care? And what's going to be the infrastructure for offices? Is this going to need to be regionalized? Will patients go to various centers around the country to get their infusions and then go back and be managed by their local providers? Will those providers have an infrastructure to support the frequent monitoring of transaminases and other laboratory values and then be alerted? This is a big issue, the implementation and how it will really take place. And for this, we're really in the development phase. And I think that access question is going to evolve over time. And there are a lot of groups working feverishly to try to address these questions. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts from ISTH on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.